This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The series Fleischman is in Trouble stars our guest Lizzie Kaplan, along with Jesse Eisenberg and Claire Danes. It was adapted for TV by writer Taffy broderser Ackner from her novel of the same name. The complete series is now streaming on Hulu. Lizzie Kaplan spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenato. When you first start watching Fleischman is in Trouble, the show is mostly about Toby Fleischman, played by Jesse Eisenberg. Toby is a divorced doctor and dad living on the Upper East Side of New York City. He's starting to date with limited success and figuring out how to co-parent his two kids. One morning, his successful ex-wife, played by Claire Danes, is set to pick up their kids from his apartment, but she doesn't show. So he has to figure out where she is and, in general, what went wrong with his life. The show is narrated by Toby's old college friend, Libby, played by my guest, Lizzie Kaplan. Libby's also struggling, and as the show goes on, it shifts to focus more on her. She's wondering about her marriage, motherhood, her career, a lack thereof, and what happened to her youth and potential. Lately, I couldn't stop thinking about Toby on his dates, coming home alone, coming home with someone. I didn't have a thing for him, and I didn't want to be divorced. It's that Toby's life was no longer predictable. They had somehow had the sense of possibility returned to him. I'd been feeling so old. Here was Toby, exact same age, just realizing how young he was. I couldn't believe that it was possible for two people to be the same age and feel so different. Which one of us was right? Which is a way of saying that I was going through something too right then, but I couldn't name it yet. Lizzie Kaplan is an actor known for her roles in comedy and drama. Her first acting job ever was in the critically acclaimed but short-lived TV show Freaks and Geeks. Her breakout role was playing Janice in the 2004 movie Mean Girls. Her other films include Hot Tub Time Machine, Bachelorette, and Now You See Me Too. And her other TV shows include her Emmy-nominated role in Masters of Sex, cult favorite Party Down, and a forthcoming miniseries that's a reboot of the 80s film Fatal Attraction. Lizzie Kaplan, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. It's great to be here. This series starts with Toby Fleischman, the dad, and his side of the divorce, and this mystery about where his ex-wife Rachel is. But then it becomes as much about the women of the story, if not more, like Rachel and what happened to her and your character Libby. And it's about their struggles as women, as workers, as mothers. It's almost, it's not a bait and switch, but it's a refocus. Um, And I think that's like a great surprise of the series. Was that something that you um, were drawn to? Yes. Um, you know, one of the main ideas behind both the book and the show are that, and it comes from Taffy's own personal experience as a female writer at men's magazines for the most part. We should say that Taffy broderser Ackner is the writer of the novel Fleischman and is in trouble, and she also wrote the show. Yes, yes. Um, And she discovered, and Libby discovers in our story, that people don't seem to care about her stories if they're written about a woman. They care about them if they're written about a man. And so Taffy manages to kind of Trojan horse the real story into this, you know, you, you think that you're watching this 
story about a man getting divorced, figuring it out, dating apps, and you're really not watching that story at all. Uh, you are, you have to wait until episode seven until you see the Rachel Fleischman side of the story, and then you have to wait till episode eight to kind of get the whole picture, which was that this entire thing was really an exercise in Libby's mind. And it's a sad truth that I think is part of the whole thing, which is, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this show would have been watched by as many people if it was about a woman going through horrific postpartum depression and anxiety and another woman having sort of a slower burn midlife crisis. Like I, I think that immediately turns off a lot of male viewers and honestly, a lot of female viewers as well. Um, it's, it's true what Taffy has discovered. I'm interested in your voice and the fact that your character is the narrator and your voice is throughout the whole series. You're everywhere. Yes. <laughs> your presence is yeah. there. Um, how did you feel about that being the voice throughout? I think I read that you as an actor, you don't like to watch your stuff as much after. But what about your voice? You have such a distinctive one. I do have a very distinctive voice. And I think most people, I mean, you know, you listen to your voice all the time. It's jarring. Uh, it's less jarring to just hear my voice than to have to hear my voice and watch my face as the voice is coming out of my face. I really usually don't like doing that. But I did do it with Fleischman. I did watch it. Um, and I'm glad I did. I think part of it was curiosity to see if it would work. This really heavy use of voiceover, which is something people usually shy away from, and for good reason. Um, it can be used as a narrative crutch a lot of times. It can be lazy. Uh, in this case, it was so deliberate. You don't really realize how it's deliberate until towards the end of the series. You had just become a mom before filming began um, in 2021. One of the great things about the series that it complicates this idea of motherhood is like it's realistic about it. It deals with postpartum depression, the extreme pressures of motherhood, the fact that sometimes, you know, a mother cannot be just focused on their kids, you know, and um, I appreciated the look at motherhood not being natural or idealized. Oh, me too. And it was the perfect, I mean, for so many reasons, it was just a lucky break to get to do this show and the dawn of my own motherhood because the curtain was being ripped away on a daily basis for me, especially in those first three months, as I think it is for many new mothers. I mean, I didn't go into it. I think this is another benefit of being a bit older. I didn't go into it thinking it was going to be like this completely blissed out experience 24 hours a day. But this is what we're fed as new mothers, that it needs to feel a certain way. And that way is nothing but overwhelmingly positive and it's the best thing you've ever done in your life at every moment and if it's not you're doing it wrong and you need to feel bad about that definitely another thing that libby is struggling with is being a female writer at a men's magazine being a woman who mostly works with men when the writing is about quote unquote masculine or dude subjects like cover stories about climbing mountains and extreme eating, like eating animal hearts. <laughs> um, and she, as a writer, she's frustrated because she isn't getting the same kinds of assignments. She isn't getting the same career advancement as her male counterparts, some of them even younger. 
And I want to play a scene from the show. Um, Here, Libby has been at the magazine for 15 years, and she goes to a party for this senior reporter, like this gonzo journalist type guy who's being celebrated. And she feels like she's done. She can't do it anymore. So she's back home. She's talking to her husband, played by Josh Radner. I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing. What? What happened? I was rereading The Heart is a Lonely Dinner. I just, I don't know. I always thought, like, if I write good stories, if I prove myself, then one day they're going to send me to the top of the mountain to eat the still-beating heart of the ox. And I'll know the secret to life. You'll get there. You will. I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't. I'm not even close. God, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I have to leave. Listen, come here. Come here. Listen. Those guys who embody the ethic of the magazine, they're blowhards. They come to you when they want a good story without the pages soaked in blood. They come to me when they want a story that's filed on time. They do. I want to soak my pages in blood. You know, I want people to read my stories and cry and rend their garments. They will. They don't. They don't. They don't. God. I just feel so stupid. I was never in the game. You could be a great writer at a men's magazine, but... No matter how hard you work, if you're a woman, you can't be a man. It's like, I don't even feel like anybody reads anything I write unless it's about a man. That's a scene from the series Fleischman is in Trouble. Now, after this, she decides to quit and write a novel, but then she struggles to write that novel, and that's sort of where she gets stuck. But I was wondering if you've ever felt the way that Libby does here, that way as an actor in your work, that kind of frustration of being passed over or left behind. Yes, I think that's sort of part and parcel of the gig. But I do remember when I was younger, especially when I was younger, I I, I don't really feel this way anymore. Um, I, I feel like roles for women, especially in television, uh, they just get more interesting. Uh, they have for me as I've gotten older. Um, but I know that is certainly not, something that everybody feels. Uh, I, I know that I'm lucky to feel that way. Um, but I definitely remember when I was younger and, and auditioning for like a lot of this, you know, high school stuff or some early 20s stuff. And it's just the male roles were always better. They always got to do the more fun stuff. And you were sort of relegated to, you know, a few different archetypes as a girl, especially back then, um, it, it has changed a lot. I see in like a lot of the teen shows now there is a shift. Um, but there was, you know, the hot popular girl, there was the nerd, there was like the alternative best friend, which was very much my lane for a while. And, you know, I, I was very fortunate to be in some projects that kind of skewered the archetypal nature of those things. But for the most part, the things I auditioned for, certainly, I remember asking many times when I was younger, like, can I audition for the guy part? 
can they, is there any way? There's no reason why he has to be, this character has to be a guy. It can be a, a girl. And I certainly had like nowhere near enough clout in the business for anybody to do anything other than laugh at that request. Now, you were born in Los Angeles and you you grew up there, but you didn't think you would be an actor early on. I think people who don't live in L.A. would think that everybody who lives there is exposed to acting, but you weren't? I wasn't. Um, I, I wasn't. It, I think that is a, the general misconception about growing up in L.A. without any, you know, if your parents are not in the industry. Uh, it's a very normal upbringing. The only difference is that you see a lot of famous people and it doesn't really phase you as a kid to see celebrities. That's just like part of living in LA. But very few of my friends from growing up, I mean, none of none of whom had parents or family members in the industry, I mean, nobody became an actor. Nobody went into Hollywood. Like may, maybe a couple peripheral friends, but for the most part... It just wasn't the path, which feels so nuts because I'm actually jealous of that version of an of an LA upbringing, um, which has is now no longer an option for hmm. my son. Let's say he's now the child of actors, and so his version of LA will always be different than my childhood in LA. Um, my dad was a lawyer. My mom was a teacher, and then a political aide. And I never thought about being an actress, ever. Uh, I went to a performing arts high school, but I went for the piano. And that's where I like truly stumbled onto acting, uh, something that I never thought about. If this is too personal, let me know. Um, your mom passed away when you were young. And I was wondering if you're interested in acting early enough that she knew that that was something that you were interested in. Uh, no, it's not too personal. And no, my mother had, uh, she passed away when I was 13 and I didn't start thinking about being an actress until I was 15. And I do remember with the intensity of a angsty 15 year old feeling like, I don't know what to do with these feelings. I had no idea how to process my mother's death. It took me many, many years. But I knew that it gave me a darkness that in my mind was a requirement for being an actor or the kind of actor I wanted to be. I needed to have this like inner pain in order to do it. Um, I remember going to an acting class and auditing it when I was 16 years old. And it was in Hollywood, and it was a pretty prestigious acting class, and it was full. I mean, there was a hundred people in it, and it went really late till you know one a.m. And I stayed there and I watched it the whole time, and then I met with the teacher afterwards to see if I could join the class. And she looked at me and asked me how old I was, and I said I was sixteen. And she said, "You haven't had any life experience. You can't be in this class." And booted me out. And that moment. I, it's so crystallized in my brain because I remember feeling like, oh, no, 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 this is the community that's supposed to see these things in me, that I do I do have the depth that is required to be in this class, but you just see some dumb little teenager who hasn't been through anything, when the reality was I had been through what is still the most monumental tragedy of my life. 
What do you think about what you thought about as a kid that, like, you needed a darkness in order to be an actor? Like, what do you think about that thought now? Honestly, my knee-jerk reaction to it is that sounds like a very immature way of thinking. But I kind of think I still agree with it. I think that without having experienced real pain, I don't think I'd be wanting to experience that pain in a more public way or try to like figure out how to process that pain in a in a more public way being through my job. All I knew was I felt very different from my friends when that happened to me. And it all of a sudden, my friends who I was so close with, I, w- I felt very other. And only much later in my acting career did I realize that the other people I was acting with that ultimately became my close friends, they were as traumatized or broken as I was from different things in their life. It's like a It's something that I think a lot of actors and a lot of the ones that I'm close with and are are my friends, we gravitate towards other actors and this line of work because we're looking for a place to talk about how we're feeling uh, coming from pasts where maybe that wasn't so easy to do. Your first role was on Freaks and Geeks, which was a short-lived but critically acclaimed TV show that was on from 1999 to 2000 by Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, and it launched a lot of actors' careers. What was it like having that be your first role? Little did I know that critically acclaimed and short-lived would describe the vast majority (laughs) of my future projects. It was, the experience itself was very overwhelming and just like stepping into this completely different universe that I I had no idea about it. I mean, I grew up in LA, but I had never been on a movie set before. I didn't know how any of it worked. I didn't know about, you know, marks on the ground and coverage and close-ups and how long everything was going to take and hair and makeup and how many outfits I'd have to try on for this one line that I was going to say. I remember being in my tiny trailers, they call them honey wagons, the trailers that have like, I don't know, six or seven little compartments and it's where we all, we all start out in the honey wagon. And just looking in the mirror for hours, just reciting this one line over and over and over and over again and being terrified and just in love with the idea of this moving village with these hundreds of people all working towards this goal together, but also feeling, again, completely overwhelmed, very shy, Uh, not bonding in any way with any of my castmates or anybody. Uh, And I know that I look back at that experience and I am, it, it was just honestly pure luck to end up on a show that ended up being so loved and so respected for so many years because I really did audition for all kinds of nonsense and just that was the first place that picked me. Um, but it wasn't a fun experience for me. It was mostly just scary. 
We're listening to the interview Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenado recorded with Lizzie Kaplan, star of the series Fleischman is in Trouble, which is streaming on Hulu. After a break, Kaplan will talk about her breakout role in the film Mean Girls, what it was like filming sex scenes in Masters of Sex, and having to turn down the Party Down reboot. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to our interview with Lizzie Kaplan. She stars in the FX series Fleischman is in Trouble about marriage, parenthood, career, and middle age. The series is streaming on Hulu. Her other films and TV shows include Mean Girls, Party Down, Freaks and Geeks, and Inside Job. She was nominated for an Emmy for her work in the series Masters of Sex. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Boldenado. One of your breakout roles was in the 2004 movie Mean Girls, written by Tina Fey, about girls in high school, where there's this popular group of mean girls and a plan to take them down. You play Janice Ian, a smart, snarky outcast at the school, mostly because one of the popular girls started a rumor about your character being gay during middle school. Um, your character with her friends, one of them being the new kid played by Lindsay Lowen, um, your character hatches this plan to take the main mean girl, Regina George, down. I want to play a scene from near the end of the movie. There has been all this drama and all the girls at the school are having this big meeting trying to resolve it. Girls are getting up making public apologies. They're doing trust falls. And your character gets up. Uh, Regina George, played by Rachel McAdams, speaks first. Oh, my God. It's her dream come true, diving into a big pile of girls. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, I've got an apology. So I have this friend who is a new student this year, and... I convinced her that it would be fun to mess up Regina George's life. So I had her pretend to be friends with Regina, and then she would come to my house after, and we would just laugh about all the dumb stuff Regina said. And uh, we gave her these candy bar things that would make her gain weight. And we turned her best friends against her. And then, uh, oh yeah, Katie? You know my friend Katie. She, uh, she made out with Regina's boyfriend and then convinced him to break up with her. Oh God, and we, we gave you foot cream instead of face wash. God! I am so sorry, Regina. Really, I, I don't know why I did it. I guess it's probably because I've got a big lesbian crush on you. Suck all that! That's a scene from Mean Girls. <laughs> I don't know the last time you heard that. but <laughs> I mean, so long. My voice was so high. It was like a prepubescent boy. Well, Janice is a beloved character. What was it like for you after that movie came out, or maybe even later when the movie became kind of even bigger over time? Yeah, it really has. All I knew was that it was the funniest script I had ever read, and I would do anything to be in it. And then the making of that was so fun. I mean, that is a perfect example of, you know, we were in Toronto and young and living in this hotel together. And it was it was just a, a wonderful experience. And then it did well um, when it first opened. And so I thought that meant that I was off to the races. And that is certainly not, not what happened. I didn't work after that for a year. Uh, I didn't know 
I didn't really understand how I could be in something that seemed to be successful and like none of that success seemed to be rubbing off on me. So I did what uh, most actresses in the early aughts did, <laughs> got a spray tan and dyed my hair blonde and uh, joined a show on the, on the WB network. That felt like the antidote. Um, can you talk about the kinds of things that you were going out for in that time after Mean Girls? Like, remind us what the WB was and what kinds of things were available for you. Yes, the the WB. Oh, it was a, a very symbolic to actors my age. Uh, the WB was the network that had like Dawson's Creek and uh, One Tree Hill, all those teen shows, and. That was kind of a necessary stepping stone for many people. Uh, And I really wanted to be seen as anything other than Janice. And so, like, doing something on the WB, like, honestly playing, like, a blonde, tan girl, like, felt as far a departure as possible. So I did this show on that network called Related, about four sisters. um, And it was... Was kind of piggybacking on the success of Sex in the City, but it was like for a network, so much more tame and about sisters. That got canceled, and then the next job that I was up for was this show, The Class, and playing a role that was much more of a Janice than anything else. And I remember being really resistant to going out for it because, again, I just didn't want to be seen as this one thing. And my agent at the time, who is still my agent today, Warren Zavala, reminded me, uh, it's funny, I was just at dinner with him last night and we were talking about this very thing. And he told me, to shut up because nobody was paying attention to my career in the same way that I was paying attention to it. Nobody was tracking like, oh, I had already played a girl with dyed black hair who was very snarky before. Nobody cared. Stop thinking that people are watching you as closely as you're watching yourself because you're going to hold yourself back. And he was right. I mean, the class ended up (laughs) being canceled very quickly as well, but it was one of the most amazing fun experiences I've ever had. And I learned a lot on that show. Um, I want to ask you about Party Down, another beloved series that you were a part of. It was about a group of caterers in L.A. begrudgingly working at parties, but most of them are trying to make it in Hollywood. It ran for two seasons in 2009-2010. You play Casey, who's a comedian, but also working for this company. I want to play a clip Um, from the show is from the first episode and you're talking to Adam Scott's character who's another one of the people who works for this company Um, you're talking for the first time so do you act? well I look familiar you do Mm -hmm. and you smoke parliaments Mm. I dabbled are you uh... a professional waiter I'm not no no I'm a comedian no yeah I figured that my natural hilariousness would have tipped you off by now Wait a Were you the were you that guy? Yes, I was. You were! You were totally that guy. That is bananas. I remember that. Yeah. I remember you. Yeah. What are you doing working here? Well, you remember me from anything else? That's a scene from the first episode of Party Down. Uh, this is a show about 
people on the bubble of making it in Hollywood. Did it ever feel similar to your own experience as an actor? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was the only one in that cast who had been a cater waiter. Uh, I did like a few, catered a few parties. Oh, I remember very vividly catering the being John Malkovich premiere party and walking around with a tray of past apps. None of these people like looking at me like in the eye at all. I was just like a tray that moved and feeling those feelings that all the characters in Party Down were feeling, which was basically like, oh, you you don't know who I am now, but you just wait. You wait. I hope it's okay to ask this question. Um, For years, I'm sure you were asked if there would be a reboot of Party Down. And then they shot another season of the show. They did the reboot, but you weren't able to be a part of it because you were shooting Fleischman is in trouble. Was that hard for you to not be a part of it? Brutal. (laughs) That was so horrible because Party Down, it was... The best case scenario when you get along with people on set, we always refer to it as like a summer camp vibe. I've never had it feel more like a summer camp vibe than on that show. And so when it was coming back, I mean, we always talk about how we would all jump at the chance to come back. And like the the Fleischman is in trouble opportunity came up, I was trying to do anything possible to make it work um, because the Fleischman is in trouble shot in New York and Party Down was shooting in LA and they were completely overlapping. But I remember being on the phone and trying to make these deals like I will get on a plane every two days and fly back and forth. I will figure out how to do that with a four month old baby. I don't care. I need to be able to do both. We need to work this out. And I think if it was any other time that wasn't a COVID time, maybe they would have let me do it, but it was just completely impossible. And I really grappled with the decision. And my husband gave me the piece of advice that I needed to, to, to ultimately make the decision to go with Fleischman. And he, he said, you just have to decide, is this a moment in time that you want to spend looking back or looking forwards? And I went with forwards. And the heartbreak is so real with Party Down, but I just have to have faith that it's going to come back for another season. Let's take a short break here and we'll talk some more. Our guest is Emmy Award-nominated actor Lizzie Kaplan. She stars in the series Fleischman is in Trouble. Her other films and TV shows include Mean Girls, Party Down, Freaks and Geeks, Inside Job, and Masters of Sex. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. I'm wondering how doing sex scenes has changed for you over your career now that intimacy coordinators are required on sets? I know that your first nude scene was in an episode of True Blood that you shot and in Masters of Sex, there's a lot of sex and nudity. Have things changed on sets over time? So much, so much, which is wonderful, especially for the young people starting out. Uh, for the young actresses that don't yet feel powerful enough to speak up on set. Because it's a very intimidating place to be when you're young and new. Uh, so True Blood, yeah, it was like, <laughs> it would never happen like that 
again now where I was just like drinking vodka at seven in the morning to try to like build up the courage to do this. And they were wonderful on that set. I never, I'm very, very fortunate. I, I never found myself in a situation and doing any of these jobs where I felt unsafe or pressured into anything. So I'm not really even the person the intimacy coordinator is there for. They're there for the people that are having a very different experience. Um, Masters of Sex, definitely no intimacy coordinator. And it's like a completely different time because uh, since then I have worked on shows where there have been intimacy coordinators and there's this whole other step that just didn't exist at all back then. So what are the new steps that are there now that weren't there for Masters of Sex, for example? Masters of Sex, it was a show run by a woman. It never felt gross. Uh, I never felt uncomfortable. If I remember correctly, like we would maybe draw out some rough parameters and then it was a bit of a like improv situation. I mean, we knew where the cameras were going to be. We knew what we were trying to say in the scene, but not every single beat was pre-planned. Now it's treated much more like a highly choreographed dance the intimacy coordinator, you usually have a conversation with them before you shoot any of this stuff at the beginning of, of shooting the show, let's say, like well before you're you're getting ready to shoot a nude scene or a sex scene. And then when those scenes are getting closer to being shot, they send you, because oftentimes in the script it'll be like they kiss and then begin to make love, let's say. This is my genius writing example. And then within that, the intimacy coordinator will beat out an entire scene of how they think it might go. It's very detailed. Uh, You know, this hand comes out of the shirt and the pants come off here and then you move over here and then you all kind of talk about it and you decide if you agree or disagree with the way that the more detailed scene is laid out. And then from there, you shoot it. It's a totally different thing. I mean, I would oftentimes think uh, if we had an intimacy coordinator on Masters of Sex, we'd still be there shooting just because of the added time that it takes to really go into the granular detail of, of these scenes. And I just come from, you know, like really like a different time. And I just think it's it's so important to have somebody there to look at if you're feeling uncomfortable, who will swoop in and help you out. Your next project is a limited series that's a reboot or maybe a reimagining of Fatal Attraction. And just a reminder that Fatal Attraction was a 1987 film starring Michael Douglas and Glenn Close. And this movie was a huge hit. It was the highest grossing film worldwide that year. It got Oscar nominations and maybe launched kind of a lot of other similar psychological erotic thrillers, I think that's what they call them. (laughs) But at the time, and in retrospect, it gets a lot of criticism. In the new series, you play the Glenn Close character, Alex, and it also stars Joshua Jackson and Amanda Peet. Why did this new take on this story appeal to you and the people that you're making this series with? Well, it's important to note that I love the movie Fatal Attraction. I think it's wonderful. I think it holds up 
in so many ways, it's still scary. It's still exciting. It's still very sexy. The performances are incredible. It looks beautiful. I, I love the film. But when you watch even the film now, I find as an audience member, it's really difficult to see it in the same way that audiences saw it in 1987. Uh, in 1987, you could go to a movie about a married man who's married with a child, who has this torrid weekend-long affair. Everything obviously goes haywire. She becomes obsessed with him, and she we walk away feeling like that woman was evil, horrible, despicable, deserved to die. This poor man who made this one little mistake deserves nothing more than to ride off into the sunset with his wife and child. And thank God he prevailed against this horrible woman. Now, when you when you watch it now, it's very difficult to not have some follow-up questions about that. That version of the film can't exist in 2023 because of these questions, because we're now primed as audiences to want to know more about the woman, where she was coming from, and also to place some very well-deserved blame on the man. There's no blame placed on him in the film. So I think while it's, I completely understand wanting to preserve things that meant a lot to us as audience members, like the holiness of a movie you loved growing up. There are other ones like Fatal Attraction where I think, why not? Let's do a deeper dive into this because there are now more questions when you rewatch it. And if nothing else, I really think that it holds a magnifying glass up to audiences and how much we've changed that a movie like that, that was so hugely commercially successful as well as critically acclaimed and awards and everything that you said, audiences today can't see it through that same prism anymore. We just have changed so much as a culture. Lizzie Kaplan, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much. Lizzie Kaplan spoke with Fresh Airs and Marie Baldonado. Kaplan stars in the limited series Fleischman is in Trouble. All the episodes are now streaming on Hulu. Kaplan's next project, the miniseries Fatal Attraction, premieres in April. After we take a short break, David Bianculi will review the new series Shrinking, starring Jason Siegel as a therapist and Harrison Ford as his mentor. This is Fresh Air. A new comedy series streaming on Apple TV Plus called Shrinking stars Jason Siegel from How I Met Your Mother as a therapist trying to deal with people's problems and issues, including his own. The first two episodes premiered Friday, with new episodes shown weekly. The co-stars of Shrinking include Harrison Ford, who recently began starring on his first series for television, the Western period drama 1923 on Paramount+. Plus. Our TV critic David Bianculi has this review. The newest Apple TV Plus comedy series, Shrinking, has a lot in common with Ted Lasso, another series from that same streaming service. Two creators of Shrinking came from there. Bill Lawrence, who also created Scrubs, was a Ted Lasso writer and producer. So was Brett Goldstein, who also co-starred in Ted Lasso and stole the show playing aging, grumpy soccer player Roy Kent. The third creator of Shrinking and its central star is Jason Siegel of How I Met Your Mother. He plays Jimmy, a therapist who's been in a tailspin since his wife died. He's been neglecting his teen daughter Alice, played by Lucita Maxwell, 
and basically relying on his next-door neighbor Liz, played by Krista Miller, to raise her. Basically, he's just going through the motions and even yawns while listening to his therapy patients. Until one day, he snaps and decides to say what he really thinks and to give some very direct advice. The patient, Grace, is played by Heidi Gardner from Saturday Night Live, and she's understandably confused. He loves me. Not enough. Grace, we've been doing this for two years. Two years of your life. I have never seen a guy tell a woman that she is dumb and lucky she has great t- and thought to myself, wow, they must really be in love. And he keeps telling me how great he is. Well, I saw him. He's not that great. His muscles are too big. His shirts are too tight. Nobody likes that. It's gross. And what's the word? What's that word? What's the word? I don't know. What word are you talking about? Fugly. He's fugly. He's a fugly, fugly man. Fugly inside and out. I am sorry. I don't know what's happening because I was talking and... Grace, your husband is emotionally abusive. He's not working on it. He doesn't intend to. He's made you think it's all you deserve. It's not. Just leave him. It's not that easy. It is that easy. You don't have any kids. Just go, go to your sister's in Vancouver. Instead of feeling that he's hit a new low, Jimmy suspects he might have stumbled on a whole new way to treat patients. He runs it by his two colleagues at the therapy center, who have polar opposite reactions. Paul, his friend and mentor, played by Harrison Ford, is all deadpan disapproval. But Gabby, played by the much younger Jessica Williams, sees some potential. Hey. Hey, kid. How you doing? I'm normal, you know. It's a normal day, normal day. Doing it, doing it normal style. Hey, you know what I was thinking, Paul? Is it about how you're just doing it normal style? What, what are you thinking? You guys ever get so mad at your patients that all of a sudden you just, well, shake them? Well, we don't shake them. No, I know, I know, I, I, I'm rooting for them. I am, I'm like, come on, you up person. You can change, and then they just never do. Compassion fatigue. We all hit those walls. Yeah. You ask questions, you listen, you stay non-judgmental, and you don't make that face. Sorry. It's just, look, we know what they should do. You know why? Because it's pretty simple. I get sad when I do this thing. Maybe don't do that thing. We know the answer. Don't you ever want to just, just make them do it? Great idea. We just rob them of their autonomy, any chance they have to help themselves, right? And we become what? Psychological vigilantes? <laughs> oh my God, I'm like sensing the sarcasm, but that sounds kind of badass. The setup seems to suggest a light look at an alternative therapy approach, with patients providing easy, reliable laughs the way they did on the Bob Newhart show. But shrinking has more on its mind and wants to treat its characters and their interactions more seriously. Jason Siegel's Jimmy has some significant father-daughter issues to confront, and so does Harrison Ford's Paul. His daughter, played by Lily Rabe, doesn't know her dad has been diagnosed with Parkinson's, and he doesn't want to tell her. One of Jimmy's patients, played by Luke Tenney, is an Army veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the patients, like each of the therapists, goes through ups and downs and times when they're being less than honest, even with themselves. There's a lot of savvy sitcom experience on display here, and all the actors are used well. Michael Urie from Ugly Betty, 
Ted McGinley from Happy Days and Married with Children, Krista Miller from Scrubs, Wendy Malick from Just Shoot Me, they all create characters who seem real enough that you begin not only rooting for them, but caring about them. And Harrison Ford, with his quiet weariness and his startling unpredictability, gives the best performance of all. In one later episode, his reaction to a preening peacock made me laugh louder and more unexpectedly than I have in years. I've seen nine of the ten episodes of Shrinking from this season, and they kept surprising me. Characters didn't always act how I expected them to, and though most of the scenes were funny, some of them snuck up on me and made me suddenly sad or emotional. Ted Lasso did that to me, too. The characters in Shrinking will grow on you, while they're growing themselves. Jimmy's approach to therapy may not be for everyone, but Shrinking, as a piece of TV entertainment, I can prescribe without reservation. David Bianculli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed the new comedy series Shrinking, starring Jason Segel and Harrison Ford. It's streaming on Apple TV+. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about how cell phones and electric vehicles are powered by workers in slave-like conditions mining for cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Cobalt is an essential component of the rechargeable batteries used in devices and EVs. Our guest will be Siddharth Kara, who has researched modern-day slavery and human trafficking for over 20 years. His new book is called Cobalt Red. I hope you'll join us. I'm Terry Gross.